This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AT&T Business. Next level moments need the next level network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. I'm Ellen Nakashima, a national security reporter with The Washington Post. And thank you all for joining us for what promises to be an engaging discussion here with uh, on the latest trends in cybersecurity with Brandon Wells, the executive director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Really pleased to have you here. Thank you, Director Wells. Welcome to Washington Post Live. No, thank you, Ellen. It's really fantastic to be here and join you and the Washington Post team. So I want to open with the most significant long-term strategic challenge to the United States, whether in national security or cybersecurity, and that's China. Historically, we've been focused on Chinese attempts to use cyber for political and economic espionage, but now that threat is evolving. And Brandon, tell us, what's your latest understanding of what China is attempting to do in cyberspace against the United States allies and partners, and why should we be concerned? Sure, Ellen. I think that that really is an important question to start with because China really is uh, the number one geostrategic challenge for the United States, uh, both broadly and then uh, absolutely within uh, the cyber realm. And I'm going to draw upon kind of two public documents that the U.S. government has released over the past year to help, I think, paint the picture of kind of the evolution of the Chinese strategic threats that we face. Uh, one was released earlier this year by the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the annual threat assessment that they release at the unclassified level. Um, in it, it presents a really stark uh, warning that uh, in the event of conflict, China would look to target U.S. critical infrastructure for disruptive operations. Um, and they're going to do this for three reasons. Uh, one, to affect U.S. decision making. Two, to induce societal panic broadly inside the United States, and three, um, to disrupt the ability for the U.S. to project power uh, into Asia. Um, and importantly, it notes that China has the ability to do that today, and targeting U.S. critical infrastructure uh, like transportation systems or oil and gas pipelines. Um, and then more recently, uh, just, uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, CISA, along with the NSA and the FBI, released a public advisory on, on a series of intrusions that China has uh, executed uh, directly targeting U.S. critical infrastructure, compromising that infrastructure to preposition for future disruptive or destructive operations. Um, and I think that shows this evolution that you painted to. If you had asked me 10 years ago, the answer would have been China is primarily focused on uh, economic and political espionage, um, looking to advance their economy, looking to steal uh, secrets or uh, plans for uh, fighter jets, but that threat is, is absolutely evolving. I think it is far more serious today, and it presents a really strategic challenge for the United States. Um, if we want to enjoy the freedom of action uh, on the geopolitical stage, um, and we want the ability to ensure that we can defend our friends and allies around the world, um, we cannot let hostile nations like China into our critical infrastructure and hold it at risk. That's a really disturbing development with respect to China, which is our, our biggest near peer competitor in, in military terms. And tell us how, how long ago did you start to detect 
uh, Chinese efforts to preposition malware in telecom systems, oil and gas pipelines, rail systems, critical infrastructure upon which we all depend. So I, I would say that Chinese targeting of our critical infrastructure has been underway for a long time. Um, even just in the past two years, we've gone back and attributed uh, compromises going as far back as 2012 and 2013 uh, into mm. certain critical infrastructure sectors uh, to state-sponsored Chinese actors. Um, but I think we are increasingly have a better understanding of why they're trying to do that. And I think that is what the the intelligence community has come together and, and released. Um, I think, as you would note, um, the advisory we issued on the compromises of critical infrastructure most recently, um, that followed a blog from Microsoft that talked about these, that these compromises of going back, uh, you know, months. What led time. you to determine that rather than just getting into these networks for espionage purposes, they might actually have the intention to try to disrupt in maybe the event of a conflict with China over Taiwan? I, you know, I would say two things. One is, um, you know, the, the DNI's annual threat assessment kind of captures a kind of holistic look at all the intelligence that the United States has um, and the assessments that they provide reflect that holistic assessment on what we understand about Chinese intentions. Mm. Um, also, Chinese doctrine, what they write about publicly, about how they will uh, conduct war. Um, but secondly, there are some of these systems, there is no intelligence value. Uh, you don't compromise control systems um, at oil and gas facilities to for the purposes of collecting, es for, for espionage purposes. And you saw this on Guam, right? And was it linked to mil American military bases on Guam? Well, you know, I think there's, a, there's obviously a reason why they're targeting Guam, um, and it is because of the American military presence there. Um, and the Microsoft did identify assets on Guam that were compromised by China. So that is no surprise. But I think going back to what China is trying to achieve, both the ability to disrupt the, the movement of, of U.S. military support into the region um, is, is one strand. But I think if you look at Chinese doctrine, if you look at how, what the intelligence community has said, um, they also want to induce societal panic. And that means that they could target critical infrastructure anywhere in the United States that could achieve that goal. To turn off the lights, disrupt uh, water systems, cause panic of the sort we saw kind of like with uh, Colonial Pipeline ransomware exactly. a few years ago. Uh, have you actually seen China attempt to use their access to carry out a disruption or destructive attack on critical infrastructure? No, and I think you know, our, our, our understanding, and again, this is captured in, in the public documents that we've released, indicates that they would likely do this um, in the event of or you know, on the eve of conflict. And so um, there are very narrow periods about when they would actually execute such attack, um, but the consequences of them conducting such an operation are so significant uh, that it does require kind of the utmost urgency and attention to address it. Okay, so what are you doing uh, on an operational or policy level to address this? Sure. So there is there is a lot of work that we are doing to kind of buttress and support the cybersecurity of our critical infrastructure for exactly this purpose. And um, critical infrastructure is targeted from a wide variety of actors, ransomware operators, as we saw in the Colonial Pipeline and many other attacks. 
um, there's, there's a number of things that, um, that we are undertaking, and you can see a lot of this captured in the national cyber strategy that was released by uh, the White House at the beginning of this year, uh, whether it's the move towards um, expanding the amount of baseline cybersecurity standards that our critical infrastructure is subject to. Um, uh, there are uh, efforts underway at places like TSA and the Coast Guard to expand their regulatory posture when it comes to uh, the cybersecurity of the infrastructure that they oversee, like pipelines and ports. Um, uh, there is a lot of work uh, that we are doing with major technology platforms that have insight into the cyber ecosystem to try to detect these operations earlier, get that information out, um, identify where they are on networks, mm -hmm. evict Chinese uh, actors that may be inside, and also I think things like this. We need to make sure that we are raising awareness uh, across the country that this is a serious threat that um, everyone who operates uh, infrastructure that Americans rely upon need to take seriously. And that critical infrastructure is like more than 90% in the hands of private sector owners and operators. And I think we, you know, we were talking earlier about this. It's not that you can expect to prevent every single uh, intrusion or attack. Sometimes things get through, systems might get disrupted and taken down. But what's important to understand and know about these sorts of attacks? What's the mindset people have to adopt? Talk yeah, no, I, think, I think that is a, a really important point because um, this is hard. We've got a very diverse infrastructure. We've got a lot of potential targets that China could potentially exploit. Um, and it, it is incumbent upon us to realize that we may not stop every attack. Um, we may not be able to fully defend our way out of it. Um, and so what we need to ensure is that we have the, the, the degree of resilience uh, in our systems uh, that will allow us to continue to operate uh, even in the face of, of an aggressive actor. Um, and so this is- What does is, that mean? Sure, and so I, I think it means a couple of things, and I think we want to take a look at resilience very holistically, um, that it starts uh, broadly in terms of what are we doing to build national resilience against these threats? Um, what are we doing to build resilience in communities? So uh, earlier uh, last week, I was with the Deputy Administrator of FEMA and the Deputy Commander of NORTHCOM out at the National Emergency Managers Association talking to the directors of every state's uh, emergency management offices about what they need to do to plan and prepare for disruptions so that they are ready to make sure that their communities uh, can, can go on. Um, our infrastructure needs to have operational resilience, functional resilience, that even in the face of degradation, even if their systems are under attack, that they can continue to deliver the vital functions Electricity, that Electricity, water. Yes, the water should continue to flow even if there are a loss of, of the operational control technology that they, that they utilize. And so, you know, what are your backup plans? How do you able to kind of get back up and running quickly even if you have a disruption? Um, what can you do to minimize your, you know, the opportunity to have wide-scale impacts on, on your fact, networks. Isn't that what we saw in, in Ukraine over the last year, year and a half? I mean, it's not that Russia didn't try to attack Ukraine with cyber attacks. They did. They actually did do some disruptions, but the Ukrainians were resilient. They had backup systems. They got things back up and running soon. Can you talk a little bit about... Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Ukraine is, is a really excellent, excellent example of um, how to think about preparing for... Um, uh, aggressive cyber activity by a, by a nation state. Uh, so Ukraine, going back to 2014, uh, during the first Russian invasion, um, saw fairly significant cyber attacks, including some that caused disruptions of critical infrastructure like Black the power house. grid. Yep. Um, and they have worked hard over the past, uh, you know, in, in the eight years uh, between 2014 and, and 2022 when, when Russia reinvaded. Um, 
to build that resilience into their systems. One, to kind of improve their cybersecurity. Uh, a lot of hard work by, by Ukrainian cyber defenders, supported by the US, supported by other Western countries and the private sector. Um, they made things harder for Russia to, to achieve their goals. And more importantly, they demonstrated that they, they worked across their critical infrastructure to ensure that they can continue to operate in the face of um, both kinetic attacks, um, missiles, bombs, uh, direct targeting of their critical infrastructure, and cyber attacks. Um, you know, I think there's often a question about you know, why we did not see catastrophic cyber attacks on Ukraine. Um, and you know, the pace of cyber attacks against Ukraine never let up. Mm. Um, Russia has been extremely aggressive in targeting. Some of those uh, attacks did have uh, broad effects, like when uh, Russia targeted the Viasat satellite Satellites. network and caused disruptions in communications both in Ukraine and, and other parts of, of, of Europe. Um, but ultimately, Ukraine built a really um, uh, work together to build really r resilient posture for their country. Um, and even in the face of those operations, and they they've been it. able to kind of maintain their, their, their society. Right. Um, and that is by bringing their society together, their critical infrastructure. Working um, with private sector partners, including in the U.S. and, and elsewhere, working with CISA, working with Cyber Command, working with NATO, they had a lot of, uh, of, of collaboration and partnership. Yeah, no one, no one does this work alone. Every bit of it requires deep partnerships and real operational collaboration. It's, you know, I think one of the hallmarks of, of our agency, CISA, is that we really were purpose-built kind of engage with the private sector, engage with critical international partners um, uh, to make sure that we are as ready as possible for our worst day. Right. A couple of th quick things there. One is I think one of the things that really helped them was they moved a lot of their information into the cloud ahead of time with uh, some help in advance from Cyber Command, helping them figure out which systems were being targeted. Uh, looking, turning to the Middle East here, we've, we're in the midst of a horrific uh, war with Hamas having uh, uh, la launched an attack on Israel, which has so far killed over 1,300 people in Israel, including at least 22 Americans. What about the cyber uh, aspect of that? Have you seen any significant attacks or efforts by either Hamas or its allies to, uh, to, to disrupt Israeli critical infrastructure? What about Iran? Tell us what you're seeing. You know, I, I think um, I, the attacks obviously were, were horrific, um, but we have been uh, lucky in the cyber realm. There has not been uh, significant cyber attacks as of right now. Uh, we are in very close contact with our counterparts there in the Israeli National Cyber Directorate, um, working in partnership to uh, make sure that whatever information we have that could help them uh, protect their systems, uh, that's being shared, and uh, they're giving us insight in terms of what they're seeing. Um, but right now, uh, we've seen kind of low-level cyber attacks, the types of you know, denial of service attacks and web defacements uh, that are fairly common from uh, less sophisticated uh, actors. Uh, but we are constantly on the lookout for what could be uh, more significant. Um, I think we are uh, lucky that uh, Israel has a, a very sophisticated cybersecurity um, uh, operation both in their government and in their private sector. Um, and so, you know, we have a lot of confidence in, in their capabilities, uh, but this is going to be an extremely challenging time for, for Israel, and we're providing whatever support we can uh, to, to protect them. And, you know, Iran in the past has been uh, active in cyberspace, including to attempts to meddle or interfere in U.S. elections. You haven't seen them 
step up any actions here in the Middle East in this case? Not, not, not yet. Okay. So let's move now to another major focus for CISA, which is election security and combating disinformation. After Russian efforts to sow discord in 2016, CISA and other US agencies put a lot of effort into election security. And in 2020, CISA really amped up its efforts with its rumor control website and an outspoken director. But the uh, effort to combat disinformation whether around elections or COVID, has become politically polarizing of late. And a group of conservative Republican state officials has sued U.S. agencies, including CISA, arguing that such efforts violate the First Amendment. So recently, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that CISA cannot communicate directly with social media companies regarding election hoaxes or disinformation. Brandon, how does that ruling that injunction affect your efforts to raise awareness around disinformation, especially as we're moving into a, you know, a presidential election? Sure. So uh, there's limits to what I can say about um, the, the ongoing litigation. Um, I think the, the filings from the Department of Justice will, um, will speak for us, and they've filed an appeal with the Supreme Court, um, and I'd refer people to, to that mm -hmm. filing that I think lays out the government's position. Um, and we have been very clear that we have never censored anyone's speech. Um, and, but I can, what I can say is kind of what we are doing in this area. And I think we have been clear both when we've worked with um, folks across the hill, when we work with our state and local election officials. Um, uh, when it comes to disinformation, we're focused in three areas. Uh, the first is helping people understand uh, what are the tactics that foreign um, uh, influence operations, what, what do they look like? Uh, what should they be prepared for? Um, and to help build resilience of the, of the American people, give them an understanding of the tactics that are used and are being used against them to cause and to sow discord and cause societal division inside the United States. Uh, second, uh, we are continuing to put out accurate information about how elections work. Uh, we think this is really a key aspect of building uh, kind of civic literacy. Um, and elections are complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a complicated topic which makes it more susceptible to potential disinformation. And so the more accurate information we put out, uh, the better. One, one forum we do that in is our, is our election security rumor versus reality website, rumor, rumor control. Rumor versus reality. Rumor um, uh, which we think is a good way for us to explain uh, um, how elections work, how they are secured, and give people kind of further reading for how they can get more information. And third, and I think most importantly, we have tried to amplify the voices of state and local election officials. Um, elections are conducted locally in this country. Um, they're not conducted at the national level. States are constitutionally charged with this. Um, and the people who have the best information on how elections work um, and who can best uh, debunk myths that are out there and counter disinformation are the local election officials that um, live uh, throughout our country and, and that support the 8,000 election jurisdictions that are out there. Um, and actually on our rumor control website ahead of the 2022 election, we updated it with links to the state level uh, websites that have been set up by almost every single uh, state election uh, office that provide their own kind of rumor versus reality or frequently asked questions about how elections work because we want to direct more and more people down to the local level to get the most accurate information possible. How much engagement or interaction did you actually have, do you actually have with social media companies on election disinformation? 
Sure. So um, in you know, ahead of 2018 and the 2020 election, um, we were having uh, regular meetings with, with uh, social media companies, but that is to provide very broad information. Here are the broad things that we're seeing. We, want to know about, we wanted to know about the broad things that, um, uh, that they were seeing, um, that some of those meetings continued on into 2022, but we have not um, been engaging with them since the 2022 election. And you actually really don't have much... Inter direct interaction with social media companies, say, pushing to them posts or tweets that might you might see as disinformation? That is correct. We, um, since the 2020 election, have not provided any specific information on potential disinformation to social media companies. Uh, we did that in 2018 and 2020 at the request of state and local election officials. And in that case, we were simply a pass-through. State and local election officials were identifying uh, potential disinformation to us. We had directly sent that on to social media companies. Uh, we did not um, independently verify whether the information was true or false. We didn't think that was our role. Um, we were letting the social media companies review the information to determine whether it violated their terms of service. Uh, but again, that, uh, that work stopped in, in the aftermath of the 2020 election and has not uh, resumed since. So we talk about building resilience to counter cyber attacks. W what about disinformation? What is the real way to defuse the effects of disinformation and attempts to sow discord? What, what is the role of resilience there and how do you build it? Yeah, so you know, I think this is something where um, uh, there's work that we can do at the national level to highlight what disinformation uh, looks like, how our foreign adversaries are attempting to utilize disinformation uh, to, to divide Americans. Uh, but ultimately, this is really a challenge for the American people. Um, everyone needs to understand uh, that when they amplify information that's been promoted by, by foreign actors, and when they amplify uh, disinformation, that they are kind of contributing uh, to the work that our enemies are trying to use against us. Um, and that's why we put out accurate information to make sure uh, that the American people have something to rely upon. Um, and particularly when it's something as important as our democracy, uh, we think it's essential that the American people have accurate information about how our democratic processes work uh, so that we do not let our adversaries uh, take advantage of us. And, and isn't it the case that what these foreign adversaries are doing were actually inflaming pre-existing social fissures in society that they didn't create? They're, they're there. They are coming from within our society, and they took advantage of them. And so in order to really build the resilience, you have to try to get at healing those, those fissures, right? And that's hard work. It's not sexy. It, but. It's absolutely hard work, and obviously a lot of that is uh, beyond the scope of what the cybersecurity agency uh, should be doing. But um, I think it's important for the American people to understand that, um, that we see foreign actors amplify and try to sow discord on every topic where Americans are divided. So, and, and oftentimes they'll amplify information on both sides of contentious issues, everything from gun control and police brutality uh, to elections. We have seen foreign actors attempt to influence uh, or, or sow discord. And I think even more uh, aggressive is they try to use uh, weak moments against us. So the recent wildfires in Maui, um, uh, well, it came out, one of the private sector companies identified Chinese uh, state actors were spreading disinformation that the Maui wildfires were started by American military tests. You know, complete nonsense, um, but our, our adversaries were trying to use, how, use weak how much moments traction? against us. How much traction do those efforts get? 
I, you know, they, they vary. Um, in some case, you know, I think this one was, was able to be debunked relatively quickly, mm -hmm. but um, it was out there. Um, and it just shows you the lengths that our adversaries are willing to go to get inside the Americans' head. And generally, Brandon, which efforts are more concerning or impactful uh, when it comes to sowing discord and disinformation here, foreign or domestic? I, you know, I, I don't think I'm in a position to be able to, to kind of answer that. We don't have the ability to study the effects of disinformation. Um, but I think many of us kind of can look at um, what's happening in, inside of these, um, you know, in the information ecosystem right now and recognize that it poses real challenges to our country. Um, so in a few minutes we have left, I wanted to turn to another issue that's uh, very much top of mind for people, artificial intelligence. Glenn Tifford, who co-chairs co a project on China's influence campaigns at the Hoover Institute, said that technologies such as artificial intelligence could allow Beijing to better interfere with U.S. elections. What are you seeing from your perch uh, about the emergence of artificial intelligence and what concerns you the most? And how sophisticated is its use today in election interference or cyber in general, or how not? Yeah, so you know, this is obviously a topic that um, uh, the entire government and, and a good chunk of industry is extremely focused on right now. Um, uh, I think it is, it is no doubt that any time new technology is introduced, um, that it is a race, a race between what we can do to utilize that new technology to um, extract all of its benefits and all the tremendous opportunities we get um, and minimize the risks that are posed because adversaries are trying to exploit that same technology. Um, and in this case, uh, it is without a doubt that our adversaries are looking at this technology to see how they can use it to scale um, uh, existing operations, how they can improve the sophistication of, of disinformation operations through things like improved deep fake videos, um, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Um, and we know that adversaries are attempting to use that technology today. Uh, they will write better phishing emails uh, hmm. by using large language models. Um, uh, it is a... But can know, we use the AI to also develop better defenses? Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the tension here. Can we extract all the opportunities while minimizing these risks? And so I think this will be a continued cat and mouse game uh, between the defenders who are trying to use these same technologies to improve our, our cyber defenses, our ability to spot disinformation. Um, we're also doing a lot of work with the companies who are most engaged in AI, whether the companies at the frontier who are developing the models um, or other companies involved in the AI supply chain, building those into um, uh, software applications of the future, um, to what can they do to build security in? Um, because I think we do not want to repeat some of the challenges of the internet age where we've mm. raced out with technology before building in security. Um, we have an opportunity here at the dawn of the AI age uh, to build security in, to make sure the technology that comes out is secure by design, secure by default, secure in deployment. Um, and I think that, has, that is certainly from, from the, you know, with CIS's authorities, that's where we're engaging industry to try how, to make How concerned are you, though, about China, which doesn't have maybe the same sorts of norms or um, you know, will, will abide by such standards and given it's more of an authoritarian well, I, state? You know, we, we know that, that hostile nations are going to use this technology for ill. Um, that's not a question. I think, one, we want to make sure that within the United States, we are minimizing the opportunity for the technology that we're deploying uh, is well protected um, and that it is secure. Um, because 
the U.S. is the leader here and kind of where we start will have a tremendous influence globally on how these systems look and, and the security that's baked in. Um, and two, we want to work with these companies so that we can extract as much benefit as possible and use these systems to protect against uh, enhanced threats from China in the future or, or other threat actors. I mean, certainly in the AI space, you're already seeing today open source models that are going to approach the capability of, of, the, of the frontier models uh, in the not too distant future. Um, so the genie in some respects is going to be out of the, out of the bottle. Um, but we're going to be doing everything we can to make sure that we're extracting our, the benefits from this technology to protect Americans. Okay, great. And last question, as we're a year out from the next federal election, how secure is America's election infrastructure? How well prepared are the states and the federal government here to counter threats? Yeah, so, you know, CISA has worked tirelessly, um, and we have benefited from tremendous partnership with state and local election officials who are really the ones um, on the front lines. And they have done tremendous work since 2016 to bolster the security and resilience of their systems. We believe that these systems are secure, um, far more secure today than they've ever been in, in the past. Um, thanks to a lot of hard work, um, there is active you know, community of interest that's working on them. Um, they have deployed more cyber protections than ever. Um, but Importantly, I think we want to make sure that we're meeting election officials where they are. As their um, uh, understanding of threats and risks evolve, we want to evolve our, our support to them. So in the face of the 2022 election, state and local election officials were mostly concerned about physical threats. And so we yeah. surged um, uh, support to provide them physical assessments, security assessments of polling places and um, election offices and storage locations. Um, and we'll continue to do that. Um, you know, we want to be uh, flexible and adaptable to see ch changing threat environment. Um, but we are very confident uh, that with the strong partnership with our with the election community uh, that will make sure that the election is as secure as possible. Okay, well, you heard it here. Um, that's all the time we have. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Brandon Wales, CISA um, Executive Director. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning, everyone. I'm Kathleen Koch, a longtime Washington correspondent. You know, uh, the telecommunications industry plays such a vital role in our lives today. We all want to be connected, right? But all of those connected devices can create vulnerability. Well, here to talk with me today about cybersecurity and telecommunications is Rita Marty. Rita is vice president of network security at AT&T. Welcome, Rita. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Rita, you are in charge of keeping AT&T's network secure. That is such a huge responsibility. How do you see the current threat network evolving, and, and how is your team staying ahead of those threats? I can tell you the industry have changed so much over the last few years. Cybersecurity is a board of director topic today. The investment in cyber has gone up significantly over the years. Uh, if you look at the White House, the recent national cybersecurity strategy tells a broader story. We all need to work together to improve the cybersecurity posture across the whole industry. Uh, in terms of what we're seeing, we're seeing more frequent, we're, we're seeing more sophisticated attacks that we have seen, more than we have seen in the past. Um, it's, it's, the landscape is changing significantly. Um, who, who is behind them? 
today? It used to be rogue actors, and now it's uh, part of organized crime. It's part of uh, nation state attacks. It's also pivoting to industry, to, to financial gains. Uh, you're seeing the rise of ransomware over the years. Uh, if you look at the impact of a cybersecurity uh, or a data breach, it's significant. Mm-hmm. On the average, uh, a data breach cost in the U.S. it costs about 10 million. Right. On the average, the high-profile um, data breaches that we have seen are hundreds of millions. And, and no one really is, is in, invincible, right? I mean, they're going after schools, they're going after local governments, businesses. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great point because uh, the small and mid, mid-sized business are really um, prime target for this. They don't have the IT staff, they don't have cyber staff uh, to really fight the war on, on cyber. Now, I talk to a lot of leaders who say that tools, they are constantly getting inundated um, you know, from tools all across the security landscape. How should organizations deal with that ever-expanding marketplace? I mean, it's, it's an excellent question. If you look at the cyber market, it's very segmented. A lot of uh, point solutions that are available in the market. Uh, if you're an enterprise customer, a large enterprise customer, you probably have 70 tools just to secure your enterprise. Uh, very hard to tackle, Very a lot of complexity, especially when you look at the small uh, business and the mid, uh, mid-sized business. Uh, they have a lot to deal with when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, I think one, one key uh, point to make is we need to really pivot to more integrated solutions and also pivot to embedding a lot of these capability into the network. So what, the, is, what does that look like? Um, when you talk about embedding cybersecurity in a network, it's, it's more about bundling the connectivity with the security products and tools that are available in the market. Uh, for us, we are moving in that direction where we want to provide a one-stop shop for our customers where they come in, they, they, they get the connectivity, but they also get the best tools and capability to protect them. Uh, so it's not something cyber. that's added on. Then. It's exactly. Part it's, it's part of the solution that, that we offer. Uh, and I think it becomes low touch or, or even zero touch for our customers because security is embedded in the capability they have. I mean, the beauty of that is they take advantage of our software-defined network. Uh, and we're able to block malicious traffic in the network before it reaches the customer uh, premise. Therefore, they don't have to deal with, deal with that complexity and all these tools that they have to deploy into their own environment. So it's really a win-win, uh, especially given the increase in cyber threats and attacks that we're seeing across the industry. It's leveraging things that we do internally will make them basically available for our customers. Let's talk about zero trust security. And as you know, that's where basically no one is trusted by default and and verification is required from everyone. How do you apply that concept to 5G network security? So zero trust is really about uh, having a comprehensive cyber strategy uh, and it goes beyond the perimeter. The perimeter is no longer effective in, in protecting Uh, the environment uh, because the network is a lot more distributed than it used to be uh, given IoT Internet of Things and giving the migration into public cloud. So Zero Trust is really applying uh, a framework uh, that starts with the perimeter but goes beyond the perimeter. Uh, So when we talk about our 5G network, beside having a strong perimeter around the mobility core, we're also encrypting data. 
So nothing is sent in the clear. Uh, authentication is a big topic. A lot of innovation when it comes to authenticating the user to the network. We're going beyond the traditional username and password, right? That's no longer effective. We, we need to move into multi-factor. So we're adding another step to validate who you are. Uh, it could be a, a validation code. Uh, it could be uh, your location. It could be biometrics. A lot of innovation in that space because at the end of the day, uh, social engineering is a big topic. So uh, social engineering, that's, that's the human factor. Absolutely. You clicking on a, on a URL and an email, um, a text message, and that would lead to your device getting infected. Social engineering is about 30% of the attack surface today. Uh, it's, it's something uh, that is still uh, a big impact in the industry. How do you fix that? I know that at AT&T, you helped start something called Cybersecurity at Work uh, to foster more cybersecurity awareness. Yes, so Cybersecurity at Work is a, uh, think of it as an employee network group. Uh, the, the idea here is to increase cyber awareness, to, to, to create a culture uh, that's cyber aware across not just AT&T, but across the industry. We believe everybody has a role to play when it comes to cybersecurity. It's not just the chief security office, it's everybody in the company, everybody in the industry. I think this is a call to action that we all need to work together, right? We believe that uh, the vendors, the suppliers that we work with, they really, they're a big part of the ecosystem, right? Uh, so we need to work together with federal agencies, supplier, vendor, our peers, whether it's uh, a service provider or cloud providers. So cybersecurity work is more about increasing the awareness uh, of cybersecurity, make it part of the culture. We do a lot of outreach activities as well. Uh, we, we, we invite Girl Scouts, Girls Who Code, because we also have a cyber gap uh, uh, in terms of talent gap in the industry, right? Uh, that's a big topic. How do we address the cyber gap over, over time? And, and um, How do we address that? And where did that come from? Because we, we were discussing this backstage, and I said, why do we have a cyber gap? I mean, cyber has been an issue for years. Uh, I think it's just the, the cyber landscape have changed over the years. Things have intensified uh, a lot more than it was you know, five years ago. It's becoming a board of director topic, and it's really embedded in everything we do, right? If you think about technology in general, every new technology, including AI, has a cyber component. So cyber is really kind of a lot more uh, presence in everything we do, and uh, cyber talent is something we need to tackle over time, and I think the sweet spot is attracting talent where when they're in the like early days, middle school, high school. So we're doing a lot of outreach activities uh, to bring more people in, and, and uh, women in particular, right? Uh, this is a great place to be. Um, uh, they have a lot to offer uh, in terms of uh, their uh, leadership skills, uh, multitasking, attention to details. So it's really a, a rich environment for them to strive and, and do really well. Let's talk about, now we talked about sort of the human factor there, but, but vulnerabilities that exist in software, libraries and, and tools that can create these openings for hackers. Uh, talk to me about how a software bill of materials can help, and if you could explain exactly what that is. I mean, one key thing that we do in software is making sure the code is vetted, um, whether it's uh, internally developed, vendor provided, everything needs to be vetted. Um, software bill of material is a tool 
tool that allows you to get a list of all the packages that are in your application uh, increases your visibility. Uh, many, many benefits. Uh, one of them is supply chain, because now you have visibility into third-party code that's embedded in your business. Uh, you also have a lot more visibility to what packages are up to date. You may have an old package uh, and uh, that would call for vendors to provide patching. Uh, another key thing when you have the software bill of material is if you have a zero day, uh, now you have access to that information. Your ability to patch your environment goes from days and weeks to hours significant impact to, to the business. I can tell you uh, DHS and CISA are moving in that direction. Uh, they're actually going, to, uh, looking into potentially making it a requirement for all federal, uh, for all uh, government contracts that you so have that So that's volunteering right now? It, it is, but I think they're moving in a direction of making it mandatory next year, and I think that would be a big win for all of us, because we also, um, our challenge, we want to make sure our vendors and suppliers provide us that information. We're starting to include that in legal contracts. So that, I think, is a win-win for all of us, is to have more visibility visibility into the code uh, that we deploy. There's a lot of debate right now about the risks and the rewards of artificial <laughs> intelligence. How do you see AI playing out in the security space? Uh, great question. I get that question all the time. Uh, AI is just enabling technology. It's, it's really uh, has a lot of potential. Cybersecurity is a prime use case for AI. A lot of use cases, right, where we can apply AI to cybersecurity. You're absolutely right. It is a, a concern because hackers or bad actors can use it to generate malware, and they can do that now um, quickly, uh, quicker uh, than before. But at the same time, you also have to look at the benefits. Uh, it provides a lot of advanced capabilities when it comes to cybersecurity, including generating um, countermeasures in, a, in, a, you know, uh, in less time than we have seen in the past. Uh, it also can help with the user experience. It can help demystify policy. A, a big organization or a big company have uh, extensive policy and with uh, AI, uh, they can guide the users basically through that policy. Uh, but most importantly, uh, I think the, 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 in terms of threat hunting, I think AI plays a, a critical uh, role here because it can really sort through a lot of data and tell us where the anomalies are. So it can spot cyber Absolutely. attacks more quickly. Much quicker, That's right? So uh, I think in like any new technology, you, you always have to have, make sure there's guardrails around it uh, so you can apply it securely to the, to the environment. Looking down the road, what trends do you see now in cybersecurity? Uh, I mean, we talked about uh, shift left. That's a big topic. Uh, it's, it's, it's more about addressing vulnerabilities early on in the development cycle. Don't wait till it's in production, then you have a technical debt issue to deal with. Uh, the cost of addressing vulnerability early on in the development cycle is significantly less than once a vulnerability is in production. Uh, so that's a, that's a trending topic. The other thing I want to mention is we, I invite you all, if you want to hear more about cyber and cyber trends to join our um, upcoming virtual
virtual conference. It's called AT&T uh, Secure Connection, on November 8th. Uh, we have incredible lineup of speakers and, and, and uh, topics. Uh, we're gonna cover AI, we're gonna cover other uh, trending topics in cyber, so I encourage you all to, to join that, that, that virtual conference. Now, in the way of trends, do we need to, if it's not a trend, need to start one where universities are doing more to address that, that cyber talent gap that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is uh, some schools are starting to offer cyber as a, as, a, as a degree, as a curriculum, and that's really uh, great. The other thing they're doing is embedding cyber uh, best practices into their curriculum. Like if you're a computer science major, now you're getting a lot more exposure to cyber than you have saw, seen in the past. So we're seeing even academia start to pivot into, into that space. So any, any closing thoughts? Uh, you, you got into STEM at an early age. Both your parents were engineers. You're married to an engineer. <laughs> For those looking at, at the field, and women in particular. Um, I, I am very passionate about cyber. I pivoted into cyber about nine years ago, and it's never a dull moment when you work on cybersecurity. It's really exciting every day. Um, I encourage you all to consider a career in cyber. Uh, it's, uh, it's really just... Uh, uh, I enjoy it, uh, and uh, diversity is really key to us when it comes to cyber, right? When you think about innovation, diversity, um, uh, you know, kind of trigger innovation in a way. So having women uh, and, uh, and uh, come, you know, join the cyber uh, ecosystem is really, uh, but diversity is really, really key. So excited to be here, and, and, and thanks for, for doing this. Uh, Rita Marty, Vice President of Network Security at AT&T. Thank, Thank you so you. much for a wonderful conversation. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello, I'm Tim Starks, the author of the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter here at the Washington Post. Today I'm joined by uh, Claire Rosso, the CEO of ISC2, and Victor Piotrowski, who is a lead program director at the National Science Foundation, working on a uh, focus on building out the federal workforce. Claire, Victor, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So one of the things I, I hope to achieve in this conversation today is to take what might seem on the surface to some like a bland HR topic to something that's actually fundamentally uh, intrinsic to all every other cybersecurity issue. So let's start with you, Claire. Um, hope you could s set the stage as a big picture for us. First, tell us what ISC2, uh, what their role is in this, and then give us a sense, uh, how big is the gap between demand and supply for cybersecurity uh, talent, and how has it evolved over the years? All right, so ISC2, we're the world's largest association of cybersecurity professionals, and we certify cybersecurity professionals. Our CISSP is to cyber what CPA is to accounting. Uh, we have almost 600,000 members, associates, and candidates around the globe. And so our role is to support qualified people entering the workforce and to also support them through their whole life in cyber when new ideas come up like large language models and generative AI, how do we navigate that? But one of the other things we do is we work with governments around the globe to understand the cyber policy landscape and make sure that um, it is sensible and to the best of our ability harmonized. But here are the big numbers. So we haven't quite released this yet, but I'm happy to share it. We do a workforce study every year. Our 2023 workforce study is gonna show that we increase the supply of cybersecurity professionals. So we now have 5 million cybersecurity professionals around the globe. That is fantastic. That's a 8.5% increase over 2022. 
We also have 4.5 million unfilled positions, which is over a 12% increase over last year. And the great news is organizations understand they need cyber professionals, but there is no way we can quickly and efficiently fill that gap. And what's even scarier than that gap is that most smaller organizations have no cybersecurity professionals at all. At all. Uh, Victor, I, I do want to hear about the CyberCorp program, which you've, you've been so intrinsic to uh, over the years, uh, but, but in a few minutes. What I want to ask you about first is, uh, before we dive into the kind of solutions to this problem, uh, I think many people have heard about labor shortages in, in this space before, uh, but, but why should people care? What, what are some of the real-world implications of not having enough cybersecurity professionals, and, and can you point to a specific example, threat, or issue uh, that becomes heightened as a result? Uh, well, so as, as Claire said, uh, we have an increasing shortage over the last um, 12 years, that gap of field position versus unfilled position is, is increasing. And that one in three position roughly in this country is unfilled. The same uh, in uh, federal government, that is main focus of the program that I, I've been running for 15 years. What are the ramifications? Uh, well, like in every other situation, when you will have one in three positions unfilled, right? There are things that can happen. We can miss some things. Um, the beginning of the problem is starting probably somewhere um, in K-12, in uh, K-12 education, when we have shortage of students in uh, STEM, what is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And then that repeats in, a, in a, when they arrive at college. There's less and less students uh, studying STEM. So National Science Foundation, where, where I'm employed, is investing in STEM research and education. 5% um, of students, for example, are taking in high school, only 5% of students are exposed to foundational cybersecurity courses. That's, you know, very, very small numbers. So we, we have a lot of different initiatives. Uh, one is called GenCyber in partnership with National Security Agency. What GenCyber is a short version of the next generation of cyber stars that runs about 150 uh, summer camps in almost each state where we expose students and parents to cybersecurity careers. Because it's not only students, it's also parents that have sometimes that negative cliche about what a cybersecurity profession is. Uh, so that's you know, one way we, we mitigate uh, that shortage of students. Yeah, I definitely want to return back to that in a moment. Uh, Claire, a similar question for you. Do, where do you see the, the potential impacts of, of these positions going unfilled? So it, it's actually frightening, and we actually started measuring it three years ago. So we found that when organizations do not have enough cybersecurity staff, they basically are not doing the basics. They are not patching their critical systems in timely ways. They're misconfiguring systems. They're not actively scanning their threat landscape. They are not upskilling their cybersecurity professionals, and so on and so forth. And those basic cyber hygiene, that's your basic cyber defense. And that's not happening in organizations, which is going to 
increase the threat within in the uh, the cyber profile of the organization. So that's that's really concerning. And you know, it sounds trite when you say it's not if but when, but really we are in an environment where the cyber threat landscape is such that we're just waiting for something to happen for every organization. Nobody's not vulnerable. And when you have, going back to those small businesses, when 95% of small businesses with 100 or fewer employees have no cyber professionals at all, it's terrifying. When I talk to different leaders of governments around the world, they say, wait a second, 95% of our economy in Canada is run on small business. 98% of the economy in Singapore is run on small business. And if they are unprotected, yes, they as a single organization are vulnerable, but your whole economic security of your nation can be vulnerable. Yeah, to your point about if, if not, if not, if not when, uh, yeah. I, I recall when I started writing about cybersecurity, it, it, if, if a new industry got hit, it was a big deal. But these days, I'm, when I'm writing about a, a company, an individual company being hit, I often can go back several years and find multiple occasions where they've already been hit. So, so it seems like the, the win has already happened to a long, yeah. large degree for people. Uh, sticking with you for a moment, Claire, um, we have been seeing labor shortages uh, to varying degrees across the economy. Uh, unemployment's low labor market is tight. How is this shortage in this industry different than shortages we are seeing in other industries? I think it's different because of the, the specialized nature of what folks are doing. And I don't, I think the interesting part of something else that we've learned, because let's, let's face it, and Victor I think will agree with me, what cyber historically has done in our very long three decades of existence, is we've stolen people from IT and we've pulled them over the fence to cyber. Um, but we can't do that. There, is, there are not enough people. I could hire every single person that was laid off by a tech company this year and you wouldn't even make a dent in the cybersecurity workforce gap. So we had to first define what makes you qualified for cyber. And yes, there are many technical competencies, but there's all, also a lot of non-technical competencies that cyber professionals share, analytical thinking, critical thinking, problem solving, creativity, their communication skills. And we are finding that when we look at those skills, we can start tackling our problem of filling the cyber workforce gap differently. And fortunately for us, those are the same skills that are also gonna help us get over the AI security hurdle. Yeah, I know that's something Victor cares about as well. Um, Victor, can you go back to the, what we were talking about with some of the things that NSF is doing, uh, CyberCorp is doing, and the Biden administration is doing to bolster the workforce, and, and what sort of timeline are we looking at? Uh, so maybe in, in a, I'll give you 25 years of history in one minute. <laughs> so uh, You can take two or three if you need <laughs> So uh, the cybersecurity profession started emerging about 25 years ago. And uh, uh, US was definitely ahead of any other country thinking in a very holistic way about education, workforce development, and all the elements needed. Uh, so there were two government initiatives that started back then in 1998. Um, National Security Agency introduced the concept of Center of Academic Excellence. The word cybersecurity did not exist then. Mm -hmm. uh, we use information assurance, but the, the same meaning. 
And in 2000, National Science Foundation uh, created a program called CyberCore Scholarship for Service, when uh, essentially secures uh, workforce for government organizations, offers the wonderful uh, scholarship package, and in exchange for that uh, scholarship, students work for a government organization for as long as they receive support. So that was 2000. And um, over the last 25 years, we've seen essentially overproducing cybersecurity people in the first decade from 2000 to 2010. But everything around 2012, everything changed the other way. That means over back then in 2012, for example, we had 120 cybersecurity professionals for 100 openings. Today, we have 70 professionals for 100 openings. So, so uh, the, that gap between what we produce and what is needed is, is increasing. And, and the one last thing I wanted to add that uh, National Science Foundation has, has been investing also in fundamental research, right? Because cybersecurity is not only things, operations, right, that we need workforce to operate systems today. We also need a research and development. We need to think what is going to happen in five years, what kind of tools we'll need in five years. So we invest in fundamental research. And also we perceive uh, cybersecurity in a very holistic way. It's not technical layer only. Unfortunately, we have humans on the top and 70 to 80 things of breaches are due to the human's errors or human's yeah. action at the top. So you, see, you have to think in cybersecurity also about uh, uh, social, behavioral, economics. You think you need to think about insurance, about incentives, how people react to different kind of incentives and so on. Yeah. Um, so we have a question from the audience. Uh, Claire, I was hoping you could maybe address this. This is Lauren Patrick from Georgia who asks, there's a broken pipeline with a number of people who want to work in cybersecurity, but there aren't enough entry-level jobs or apprenticeships to help develop a skilled workforce. What, initiative have you, what initiatives have you seen in both the public and private sector to help fix the talent development pipeline? Well, I'm gonna talk about two things. I'm gonna talk about something that my organization's doing, and I'm gonna talk about these amazing group of small nonprofits that are in this country that are doing just some phenomenal work. So our organization, after we attended um, the White House Summit in July of last year, that was a precursor to the National Cyber Strategy, we announced a One Million Certified in Cybersecurity Initiative. And so we had created, working with employers, working with cyber professionals, working with government, a foundational level certification that covers the core domains of cyber that will help an employer understand that you, Victor, He's a CISSP though. Um, <laughs> that you, Victor, if you take this and you can pass that, that shows that you have the aptitude for the technical parts of cyber. And so that sort of changes the game. Instead of starting at the technical, we are starting with, do you have the right non-technical skills and personality attributes? And let's see if you have the aptitude for the technical. And if you can do that, we can move you into cyber, you can be trained. So it was a tool we created for employers that turned out to be a fantastic thing for individuals as well to see if cyber was for them. So we offered our course and our exam um, for free. 
And we said, we are gonna invest in this 1 million individuals through the program. We launched that September, 2022. As of today, we've enrolled 325,000 people in the program. We've certified 35,000 people so far. And we are now working with them to say, okay, what's the next step? How do we help you get the next skills? Where are the hands-on skills that you need to get to help move into job? And we decided, we don't need to do this alone. We need to do this in coalition with others. So we have been working with a whole assortment of nonprofits, diversity, minorities in cybersecurity, WESIS, and many, many others to like build and amplify the great work that they've already been doing to take people from underrepresented groups and move them into cyber. And part of that is placing them in internships. Part of that is placing them in apprenticeships. Part of that is just helping people who don't come from a cyber background understand how do you navigate this world that is very new and very different and has a whole lot of inside language. So there are a lot of great work going on and we are actively working to get the community to stop thinking of themselves as special little unicorns <laughs> and to actually unite in, in solving this problem so that we can solve it at scale. Yeah. Because we have to solve it at scale. Very, very related to that subject. Uh, Victor, uh, what do you see as some of the barriers uh, to entry for folks who want to get into and stay in this line of work? Entry barriers? Yes. Um, well, I think in terms of resources, it's very good situation. You can, you can find a lot of fantastic high quality resources from the, the line of work that, that I'm involved, working with formal education with academic institution, I, the number one barrier that I will point to is the lack of faculty. The same way as you have a shortage of cybersecurity professionals in operations, you have a shortage of cybersecurity faculty at universities. Severe shortage. Out of 102, I believe, uh, doctoral uh, recipients in North America in 2022, only 13 ended up on tenure track positions at universities. 13 is not enough to replace retirements, yeah. but for the situation when every school wants to create cybersecurity programs, is severe shortage. So what we see is essentially a musical chair when University A offers competitive things to faculty from University B, University B from steals somebody from University C, and so on. And Somebody at the end is without faculty and has to close the program. So that's what I would identify definitely a number one barrier. The second one, as you mentioned, WISIS, I think you mentioned women in cybersecurity. By the way, this is CyberCore project that was very successfully converted to worldwide nonprofit organization. Women, when we started that project in 2014, women were at about 11, 12% in cybersecurity profession. Now we are in 22 maybe, so we are making progress. But again, 80 to 20 is the uh, ratio uh, of uh, male to female security, cybersecurity professionals. Mm -hmm. So this is another thing. It does not reflect the society. Yeah. Uh, on the subject of universities, Victor, we have another question from the audience. Uh, this is uh, from Jeffrey Davis from New Jersey. Can some cybersecurity jobs be populated with former blue-collar workers with some limited technical training and likely no college degree? 
Absolutely. Uh, think about think about cybersecurity profession that is emerging. Something like at the end of 19th century when health profession emerged, and if you think about the health allied different kind of professions, you need technicians. You need you need people with four-year degrees. You need people with advanced degrees to do research. But the same way as you don't say I'm a doctor, you have different specialization, or you have a technician, X-ray technician. The same is happening in cybersecurity and community colleges. Two-year two-year degree are fantastic. They are very hands-on technical uh, education that that prepares those. Technician of the 21st century, right? So saying we don't, we don't call this blue collar. We call it next collar mm. in our strategic plans. Is is this a technician in the very modern environment needed? Cyber crime scene. How are you going to secure that cell phone? Right. It's, mm -hmm. that, that's a technician. You don't need four-year degree, right? A, a two-year technical degree is sufficient. Yeah. Uh, this might be the last question we have here. Uh, we're running out of time. Claire, are you satisfied with how the Biden administration has approached this issue? Does more need to be done? And what would you be advising them? Okay, so my favorite thing that the Biden administration has done with the national cyber strategy is introduce the concept that this is a whole of society problem and that we need the cyber education and cyber literacy we need in boardrooms and in classrooms has to be whole of society. And that we need to place the burden of security on those best able to do it. And we'll see more coming there. Um, where I am looking for something more is this is a scale problem. And it is a rapidly moving problem. So we just can't go to the well and look at the same small projects that we've done and hope we do them better. We really need to address the issue at scale. And in my opinion, one of the best ways that we have addressed the qualified cyber workforce at scale over the past, I say, three decades, he says 25 years, um, is um, through certification. And that helps that non-degree professional. We have put hundreds of thousands our organization, ISACA, SANS and GIAC, CompTIA, we have put hundreds of thousands of qualified workers in the workforce, and we are all but not talked about in the national cyber strategy. Yeah, so this, this was a very important conversation, uh, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Claire Rosso, Victor Piotrowski, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.